self technology, the internet, GPS in the palm of your hand, autonomous operation. Technology is a driver of our times. Since its founding in 1958 in the midst of the Cold War, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, has been a driver of technology. Welcome to Voices from DARPA, a window onto DARPA's core of program managers. Their job? To redefine what is possible. My name is Ivan Amato, and I am your DARPA host. Today, I am pleased to have with me in the studio Rosa Alejandra Lukashev, known as Ale by her friends and colleagues. Ale has been a program manager since early 2017 in DARPA's Defense Sciences Office, where program managers take some of the deepest dives into fundamental science in search of new foundations for novel technologies relevant to national security. Ale's deep dive into fundamental science goes all of the way to electrons and some of the more unusual ways they can organize and behave in certain materials and how it might be useful to engineer those electronic organizations into new microelectronic and micromagnetic devices for applications in memory, logic, energy conversion, and sensors. Prior to arriving at DARPA, Ale was a professor of physics at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. Before that, she was a member of the physics faculty at the University of Toledo in Ohio. And yet earlier in her career, she was a research scientist at the Argentine National Atomic Commission, CNEA, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. After finishing her early college training at the University of Buenos Aires, Ale earned her doctorate in physics from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, and she completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Ale, thanks for joining me in the studio today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So let's start out uh, by talking about how you became interested in science in general, uh, and then in particular in, the, in physics and the antics of electrons. Well, I guess that, you know, I mean, uh, I started being interested because my father would read to me articles that he was interested in in a magazine that he was getting delivered at home at the time in Buenos Aires. He was getting Science of V, which was a French magazine about latest discoveries and developments. And he was reading this to me when I was like seven or eight years old. So, I mean, it was a very early start. So... That was the beginning. And then, well, clearly, I mean, in science has always been appealing to me. And uh, we were getting additional magazines at home, you know, that I was very avidly reading on. I remember reading once about Schrodinger equation. And even though I was like 10 or 11 at the time and I didn't know what it meant, I knew how to write it down. So I mean, Schrodinger's I, equation, you were, you were reading all about the deepest parts of, of uh, quantum atom. mechanics and uncertainty. Makes me think that your parents were uh, scientists or engineers themselves. My father was a doctor doctor in engineering. Hmm. So, but yeah, clearly, I mean, I was reading in this magazine, as I said, you know, I mean, I didn't understand what the equation meant. I was 10, but I still was able to write it, you know, to, to draw it, if you wish. So I, I was able to draw this equation on paper. And to this day, I remember it from that era. So, I mean, I was very fascinated by this. And clearly, well, you know, as, as time went by, uh, it was clear in my head that I was going to go for a career in science. I didn't know exactly what aspect of science, but shortly but surely, you know, I mean, I became very, very interested in the electronic properties of materials, and my interest went from there onwards to where I am right now. Right. So the first part of your career, you, you ended up going in an academic direction. You became a professor at William & Mary. Correct. Uh, so, so talk to me a little bit about that experience as a professor, and then I'm going to want to hear your how did you get to DARPA story. So start with the university right. experience. Okay. So, I mean, I've, 
I have been fascinated by the fact that, you know, I mean, it's not about what we are doing. It's like, you know, we as a species, we have to realize that our power resides on the fact that we transferred our knowledge. It's not our individual knowledge. It's the knowledge from every generation before us. And it is our duty in my mind to pass this along to the next generation. We're part of a continuity. In right. Other words. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. So, I mean, I was interested in, in, in being a professor for that same reason, because I wanted to to be able to, you know, identify and students that intellect, that capacity, that drive to go for scientific research and to try to mentor them and, and, and help them be the best they could be so that they can, you know, advance knowledge in that particular area ever more. So that's why I went for, for academia. Of course, you know, when you're in academia, one of the things that you need to do in order to be able to to carry out this this uh, model of trying to train graduate students, you have to get funding. And so clearly, I mean, I had to explore all the funding agencies. Among them, I explored DARPA, and I got some funding from DARPA early on. And eventually, you want to kind of learn, okay, what does it take the other side, right, to understand how to, you know, select the best people to do the best work? How is this process being perceived from the viewpoint of the funding agencies. So I was particularly intrigued by DARPA because, as I said, I was DARPA by, uh, uh, funded by DARPA in the beginning. And so this model of trying to fund basic science that has a goal, an ultimate goal, was really very appealing to me. Can I just ask you a question, though, yes. about DARPA in particular? Yeah. Because as someone in academe, uh, you might have gone to National Institutes of Health. You might have gone to National Science Foundation. Uh, what about DARPA? That well, really there, are two things, there, there are several parts to this particular question. I mean, on the one hand, you know, um, as, as an American, not by birth, but by choice, you know, I have a deep love for this country, a deep admiration for this country, and and a sense of duty regarding, you know, trying to help this country to continue be what it is right now. And the best way, in my opinion, is to try to see, okay, what are the needs of the people that are at the forefront of the defending the country? That would be the, defend, the the armed forces in general, right? And so what is that is going to make that difference in terms of, you know, advances in technology, advances in research that can help this, this mission? And clearly, DARPA at the forefront of all of these funding agencies in that particular direction. So I was very, very intrigued and curious and interested in being part of this particular organization for that reason. So did you reach out, Ale, to DARPA? Was there somebody here that knew about you? What was the, uh, the those sort of final steps that uh, got you onto the roster of program managers. I had a collaboration with Stuart Wolf, who was at the time when I was at William & Mary, he was at the University of Virginia, and he was leading an institute in nanotechnology. And and, and I took it upon myself to actually introduce my research to him, to try to start a collaborative effort with him. And, and, And this did happen, and we actually got a couple of projects going. And so eventually, well, of course, I knew that he had been a DARPA program manager in the past. So I mentioned to him that that I was interested in, like, you know, seeing the other side of the force. And so um, he actually told me, well, why don't you give me your CV, and I will pass it along. And in particularly, he told me that he was going to show it to uh, Stephanie Tompkins, which was at the time the director of DSO. In and DSO meaning Defense Science Office, one Science of the Office. six uh, technical offices Correct. at DARPA. Yes. Correct. And the rest is history. I mean, I guess that she got my CV and she contacted me to see if I was interested in pursuing a career here. 
Uh, so you mentioned Stu Wolf, and that gives me a little bit of an excuse to, to maybe dive into uh, your interests because, uh, you know, Stu Wolf, he's a big name in the area of, of spintronics, and yeah. this gets us to electronics and materials. So right. talk to me just even a little more generally, almost sure. as, as the physicist that you are, sure. uh, about this arena of phenomena that so, uh, sure. so grabs you. So basically, my my uh, my career in physics here in this country has been focused, uh, in particularly on spin-dependent phenomena, in particular magnetic materials and magnetic phenomena. And by spin-dependent, you mean dependent on the spins of particles electrons. like electrons, right? In spins, particular, electrons. Particularly electrons. Mm. Yes, that is correct. The electron spins. So, uh, turns out that during uh, his tenure as a program manager here at DARPA, Stuart actually was the father of spintronic in the sense that he realized that there were some discoveries that were happening at the time, and we're talking like late 90s, uh, in particular the giant magnetoresistance effect, which was a particularly driving force for the explosion in uh, hard drive density and storage in general that we have experienced in the last 20 years. Okay, so I just want to stop you for a minute. Uh, I realize we, we kind of just passed by this, this idea of spin dependent, the spin of electrons, but there's a difference between spin of electron, which is a little less familiar, right. as opposed to the charge of electron, the, the, the negative charge, which, which Correct. most people do know about. Correct. So talk to me about those different aspects of the electron and where spin dependence is uh, you know, coming into your work. Right. So uh, the electron spin is a very difficult uh, quantity to define because there isn't a, quant- a counterpart in classical world. I mean, it's a quantum mechanical effect. So instead of trying to define what spin is, one is better uh, suited by defining what is that spin does. And in general, what you find is the electron spin, that if you, if you think of it as like a little arrow pointing in any given direction, what happens is that electron spins like to either parallel to each other or anti-parallel to each other. And in the case of magnetic materials, what happens is that the electron spins in different atoms, in particular areas of the different atoms, they all like each other. They are, you know, very much attracted to one another, pointing in the same direction. And and what that gives you is an opportunity to give some meaning to this. And so, for example, you can say, okay, if I have a group of spins that are all aligned in a given direction, I can associate that with, say, number one. And if they are pointed in the opposite direction, they and I can associate this with, say, number zero. And then you have the binary language, and you can combine the binary language in more complex uh, languages that lead to what we use in computings these days. So, so the so, famous ones and zeros of our digital oh, age. Correct, correct. So b- spin allows you to do this. And the advantages of spin in, in are, are that, well, you can actually have this uh, composition of, of spins to be made really small, which means that you can actually uh, pack a lot of these bits of ones and zeros in space so you can enhance the aerial density that you can store of ones and zeros. They happen to be, just by the nature of the materials, uh, protected against radiation damaging. And and then one of the holy grails has always been to, to, to try to find out what is the limit, how small can you make this little amount of spins to store uh, ones and zeros in a stable manner. So the technolog- and is there a sense that by focusing on spin of the electron rather than charge of the electron that you can actually have a smaller area of a say a piece of semiconductor with where all of these electrons are, are living that the, a smaller piece of that that semiconductor will host a one or a zero? It's not just a question of the size, but it's also of the energetics. I mean, you know, I mean, one of the things that matters to you is you know to see how how much power are you going to be needing in order to have these uh, this configuration of zeros and ones. So, in general, you know, this is 
is what, what, what we found. There were several effects associated with this activity of the electrons or being parallel or anti-parallel that enabled technologies that will enhance the density without increasing the demands of power and making this very stable thermally and also under radiation. So that makes the entire uh, you know, collection of, uh, of properties that are very, very attractive, not just for storage density, so hard drives, but also for memory. And that's basically one of the uh, goals that the Spintronic program had, the program that Stuart actually started. Right. And let me bring you back now to another big multisyllabic phrase that you used earlier, which was giant magnetoresistance. The reason I'm bringing that up is because uh, that phenomenon and the technology that it led to uh, became part of our everyday lives in our hard drives, right, in the read heads of, of the hard drives. Correct. T- tell us a little bit about that technology evolution and where okay. it is it now. So what happened was that what it was found, and this was what led to the Nobel Prize in 1998, was that when you have layered systems in which you have two magnetic layers separated by one layer that is not magnetic, and if you pass current through this particular uh, contraption, the resistance of this contraption will be different when the spins are parallel with respect to when they are anti-parallel. So that gives you a mechanism to read what is going on in terms if the bit is parallel or anti-parallel because you have now resistance to enable that that determination. And that's how you sense what is in the hard drive, right? So, so what, you're, you're reading the spins, whether they're parallel or, or anti-parallel. Because they have an effect of resistance. Whether they're a one or the zero. Correct, yeah. correct. So that is the big power of this. So that was discovered in 1998. And then later, what was discovered was that if you replaced the intermediate layer, the, magnetic, the non-magnetic layer that was metallic at the time by an insulated layer, then you have an effect that is even larger, which means that you have MR enhanced sensitivity what you're doing, that was the spin-dependent magnetoresistance, spin-tunnel independent magnetoresistance, and that led to the explosion in memory in MRAM that we have today. And that's a magnetic random access memory. That MRAM. is correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. I always forget that, you know, for those of us that are in the field, this is like everyday well, language, right? But I, not I, for I everybody. I think in some ways, un- understanding science um, is understanding acronyms. That's almost half of the battle. Hey, being in the government had been yes, that's, understanding that's right. that's acronyms exactly right. every single day. So let's then segue into your life here as a program manager. And actually, you've only been doing this for less than a year. So you have a kind of a perspective of an early program manager, which I think will be quite interesting. You already have two programs under your wing. Right. One of them, PULSE, which stands for Program in Ultra-Fast Laser Science and Engineering, is a program that you inherited. Correct. And the other one, the Topological Excitations in Electronics, or TEE, uh, that's a program that you pitched to Correct. agency leadership and got the green light, so congratulations on, on that. Thank you. Let's start by talking about Pulse, which seems to be about uh, you know sort of taking our ability to generate and manipulate electromagnetic radiation in ways that have been impossible before. So tell me what your take is on Pulse and what you hope to achieve. So Pulse, uh, as, as, as you stated, is a program that I inherited. It, the basic tenet of the program is that it was uh, to use, uh, again, some discoveries that have been carried out by, by that community, which is related to the frequency comb. The frequency comb is something that takes 
pin, it can like separate specific frequencies in a broader range of frequencies and use that for a variety of applications. And that's where the, the word comb comes from, Correct. right? Because if you think of each frequency as a, a tine a of a cone and then Correct. you line them all up, you get something that in some ways looks like the comb you use Correct. when you brush your hair or Correct. comb your hair. And rather. so you can select several several uh, ends of this frequency domain. And so there, there have been work that I was particularly interested in because it ties in with the programs that I am go- that I developed. People have been able to uh, use this technology, for example, to get a kind of uh, X-ray behavior, like the kind of behavior that you get with a synchrotron facility, which is a big, large facility, and a tabletop type of configuration. So that has been fascinating to me. People have been able to to achieve this by using uh, frequency comps. And the other extreme of it was also that people have been able to probe things in the time domain with at a second precision. Now, that is a really short duration. Right. Right. I mean, an attosecond is 10 to the minus 18 seconds. So if you think of a nanosecond, which is 10 to the minus 9 seconds, which is one billionth of a second, then an attosecond is one billionth of one billionth of one second. It's really, really fast. So the, the thing about this is that it is going to enable us to actually look at the dynamic, uh, the na- dynamics of electrons, because those are the only entities that are going, well, not the only, but are the main entities that are going to be moving in that regime. So that is where you're going to be using this kind of... Uh, so in some ways, it's almost like you're trying to create a movie camera that is mapped onto the way electrons live and the speed they Correct. live at, which is so much faster Correct. than our you know, human activity. Correct. And not only the human, but all, even the things that we have been doing so far. Because, I mean, if you look at the various ranges in which we have, have been looking at things, yes, we move at some speed, you know, as humans, but then it is molecules also have a way of moving. They, they translate, they rotate, they vibrate. And then we have seen those because those movements are not at the at a second. They are much slower than that. So we have been able to see some of those things already. So, I mean, you're getting the capabilities that will enable us to see, as I said, you know, I mean, the realm of electrons, which are so much smaller and move so much faster. So this is a new capability that will be achieved by this program, and it is due to DARPA. I mean, this does not exist today. So let's stay on this one for a second before we move over to your T program. So this this sounds like very fundamental science. And of course, that's why it's within DSO, the Defense Sciences Office, among the six technical offices here. But on the other hand, we are also in DARPA. And so tell me a little bit about not only sort of where this might push the envelope in fundamental science, but how then that might actually be of relevance to national security? Well, some of the things that, for example, these technologies will enable, and I have been talking to some performers, is to, for example, uh, provide metrology, for example, for the masks in the uh, patternings that are being done at the nano level for microcircuits that are used in the, you know, makeup of a number of driving systems for missiles or whatnot. You're, you need microprocessors and and, and microelectronics in a number of, of, of instruments and, and things that are used by the armed forces. So when you reduce the footprint, there are a number of things that come with that. I mean, in addition to lower weight, obviously, right, because they are smaller, you may achieve also fast, faster, which also enables, you know, faster rate of transfer of information, but you also may enable lower power consumption, which also enables the uh, capability of having these inst- uh, this, this, um, gizmos, these chips to work with less battery needs. So batteries also have their own 
weight and footprint on the soldiers' backs. So, I mean, all of this is going into the same direction to try to make, you know, uh, the possibilities for, say, for the soldiers to be more efficient than what you have right now, but less bulky and less power hungry. So the metrology that this technique will uh, enable goes in an indirect fashion, but it goes into that particular direction. So in other, right? And by metrology, we, we mean sort of new ways of measuring things Correct. in this case, very, very small things. Correct. Correct. And, and as you were speaking, it also makes me think that this does perhaps play into the future of progress in microelectronics. Oh, right. you know, there's yeah. always this, there's been this concern for many, totally. many years that at some point, we're not going to be able to use the, the techniques we use now to make the next smallest transistor. Totally. We're going to actually need very new ideas, totally. perhaps here the coming out of Pulse, that will uh, open doors for yet another Correct. era of, of miniaturization, or if not miniaturization, increasing capability uh, of, of the chips. Or at so, least, you know, yeah. more with the same, right? More, more sensitivity for less power, even if it is the same size. So it's an advantage in any which way that you are. There, there is a very broad parameter space that you have to consider when looking at these things. So, All right. Yeah. So a lot of opportunity there um, in both fundamental science and potentially applying it you know, to, to the highest of technologies. So let's now move over to your baby, right. <laughs> if I can call it Deep. that, uh, your topological ex- excitations in electronics program. And I know this gets a little bit hairy because we're using words like topological, where we're, you're going to take our imaginations down to the electronic level. Talk to me as though I'm a, a, an undergraduate in physics and you're, you're introducing some of these ideas for the first time. I'll try. You know, I mean, one of the things that I mentioned earlier was that one of the holy grails that we have had for the application of spins in, say, uh, storage or memory is how small can you make this collection of spins so that they can keep their information as all aligned, meaning a one, or all aligned, meaning a zero, uh, without being disturbed by perturbations. Because in the end, it's always an energetic consideration. If your temperature fluctuations are more energetic than the energy that is contained in this group of, of electrons, then they're not going to win. And then you lose the information. It's like I like to tell my students, you take your laptop to Miami, and there goes all the information that you store. That that wouldn't be fun. So you need something better than that. And so I have been following the literature, and it turns out you know, that uh, we have a new tool, our at our disposal for, for probing new paradigms. And is what topology brings, which is, again, um, something that has to do with the, the, the orientation or configuration of things. So, right, and let's just, so topology comes out of really the, the, the realm of geometry, right? In a way, yes. Like, in, in a way, yes. It has to do with something that has to do with a spatial configuration, yes. So in this particular case, so that we go to the heart of the matter, I mean, I told you that spins like to be parallel or anti-parallel, but it turns out that there is an alternative possibility that scientists have discovered, and is that there are ways in which it engineer for them to be counted, that is making some angle between them. Now, if you lock them into this counting and you try to put them on a surface, you realize that now they have to arrange themselves in such a fashion that they can accommodate the counting. And, and when you try to do this exercise, if you take like two little, two little tweaks and you one upon several of them on a surface, you'll see that they have to be arranged in kind of a vortex size kind of little things. Like so, a vortex, like a, almost a spiral. Correct, or, a little vortex. Or like a little tornado. Correct, something like that so that you can put them there, right, on the surface. And that is what we call skirmions, right? And why are these interesting? Well, because now because they are counted, if you want to switch them off pointing in one direction to pointing in the opposite direction, now you have to do this with the entire, the entire lot. 
And just just for clarity, when you say the word canting, that the, the, the spins are canted, it means that they're not parallel or anti-parallel, but they're actually at a certain kind of angle, almost like a V. Correct. 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 And so now, because they are locked into this by some mechanism, right, you just cannot switch one without switching the other. So you have to switch the entire thing. Because you have to switch the entire thing, that costs you more energy than it will be doing just the individual pairs, right? So that makes the entire structure more stable. That means a, a little dot of, of thermal energy, a little heat. It's not, it's, it's not enough to flip it. Correct. So they become stable. Correct. That is what the topology offers you, a protection, so that if you can like engineer this in a suitable way such that we can create a region of spins in this configuration smaller than what we have right now for collecting the ones and the zeros, then you are in the next generation of memory devices that will be based upon this type of material. And that will push it. I mean, and there are some metrics that tell us where can we go, what will we achieve by doing that. And it's not just size, as I said earlier, it's also a question of our energetics, is how much energy do you really need to do this? Can you move them around? Can you actually do things with them? So you can open up several paradigms to use these entities for memory logic or sensor applications beyond what we can with materials right now. Okay, and does this still fall within the, the tradition of Spintronics and, and Stu Wolf, or is this be, is this in some other uh, It is arena? spin related, so it would be Spintronic in, in, in spirit, right? But it's, it has this added thing, which is the topological protection. This is topos, topological Spintronics. Right, right. Interesting. So that's the new thing, and that is where, where this can take us. Let's just talk about where your program is in sort of the general life cycle of a program here at DARPA. So you came in here, you came up with this wonderful idea, uh, you went through the harrowing experience of bringing it to what's called Tech Council, uh, where leadership and your co-program manager and others are there vetting it. So you made it past all of all of those obstacles. Now what's the status of the program? So right now we have passed source selections. So a broad announcement was placed publicly so that people could apply and uh, you know submit their proposals. Their proposals were uh, evaluated by teams of experts. And then um, decisions were made in terms of who were the most uh, qualified to achieve success. And that's what you success. mean by, by source selection Correct. is that those who, who can make it past Correct. these obstacles become a, a source, as it were. A we source. call them performers. Correct, also. correct. So right now that is the state. And so what we are going on right now will be, you know, the contracting part of it. So is that when the money is actually being delivered to the performers. And so we think that we will have the kickoff meeting sometime early in 2018. And shortly after will be review time, right? I mean, they have to perform because that's the difference between DARPA and other agencies as well, is that there are very strong metrics that have to be satisfied in order to continue with the progress. Of the, of so the let me ask you this. Uh, you know, this, this reminds me a little bit of some of the early days here at DARPA, where, for example, there was a funding of something called the interdisciplinary laboratories, and and these became kind of the the seeds of what later became known as material science and engineering. So right. you know, DARPA had a role there in actually you know kind of at least nurturing uh, what had was on its way to becoming an entirely new field, material science. So is this does this kind of ascend to that kind of possibility where because you have an idea that's organizing groups, these you know potential performers, do you think this is going to be important for starting a new field 
in physics. It is particularly important to concentrate the efforts of experts that are maybe working on various other areas that may or not be related to one another, but to concentrate them, focus them on do, uh, this specific problem with this specific metrics. And that may lead to advances in this particular terrain of which we are not even privy because we don't know what they are going to discover. I mean, we are thinking that one application will be this new generation memory that we all are needing and wanted to happen. But it so happens, and this has been the experience that, you know, prior people, including Stu, has mentioned this to me, that oftentimes what happens is that the performers discover things that you didn't anticipate. And the program can go in a different direction or it can start a new program. You just don't know where things can take you. So that's basically what my hope is, that because this is basic science, there is always the possibility of the groups of people to discover something completely non-anticipated that will blow our minds away. We will like, whoa. Well, may that happen. That's, that sounds really uh, like an exciting possibility. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, I, I wonder if at a place like DARPA, where there is such a diversity of skill sets and backgrounds, whether uh, there is even more of an opportunity to recognize when really surprising things happen. So I guess the, maybe if, if I were to form this into a question here, uh, now that you're here, you're kind of airdropped in from academe. You're, you're in the defense sciences office. Uh, have you met other program managers or run into other programs that, that in a sense, blow your mind and that are, you are now beginning to think of how they relate to your own interests? I'm definitely looking into this, particularly for the MTO, the Manufacturing Technological Office. Or the, the Microsystems Technology That Office. is correct, because yeah. these are the guys that will be perhaps the ones that may take on whatever developments come from the SO, because they are the ones that are going to try to make actual devices out of this if they turn out to be to living up to the promise that we're hoping. So, yes, absolutely. Right. I know. So it's an interesting synergy there where you might, you know, you might be on the, the really fundamental side of things. MTO, the Microsystems Technology Office, then, even though it's still fundamental on an engineering side, could take it for the, the, the next step toward what ultimately would be the finish line. And of course, the way DARPA works, that would probably be out in industry or some uh, part of totally. some other lab in, in the military services. Totally. But there is always the unexpected because in the sensor technology, you don't know. This may take you to some biology related sensors that we are not even thinking on right now. I mean, it has happened a lot, in, in particularly in recent times, that a lot of the discoveries that have been done, like, for example, taking the, in the area of nanotechnology, I mean, people were working with nanoparticles for a number of physical applications, and then, and then the biologists started thinking, how about using them as markers for biological, you know, right. processes? Right, so and, and by nanoparticles, we're kind of talking about things the size of viruses, so things Correct. that are much smaller than cells, more even Correct. smaller than some organelles, but sort of on that viral correct, level. Correct, yeah. correct. So there are, there are opportunities out there that we just don't know. And we will have to, you know, we will see if the performers get there. And then, you know, if there is such an, uh, an opportunity, we will really explore it and, and, and make the people from BTO be aware of this. So. And BTO, again, we said we an excuse to mention yet another one of the offices. So that's the, the uh, biological technologies correct. office. Right, correct, correct, right. correct. And um, so that's, that's, that's from there. And then who knows? I mean, there might be other things that may be important for tactics. I mean, we just don't know. I mean, I know that people at, uh, at in STO, you know, may be interested in, you know, 
different ways of, of, of metrology that can come from these programs that could be applicable to specific programs that they are working on. Right, so, and again, STS, so we're going through the the entire repertoire here, the entire set of offices. That's Strategic Technologies Office. I think correct. the only one we didn't mention so far is the Tactical Technologies Office. And I too. So that's all six. Oh, and I too. Oh, exactly, which correct. is Information Innovation Office. Correct. So there, there's the entire six. But again, you, we don't know. We don't know where is that this particular program is going to take us. I mean, that is the beauty of working for the ESO, that you are at the forefront of science. We are DARPA's DARPA in that regard, you know, that we are working with things that we don't know where they are going to take us. There is not a specific goal. We have some idea of where we want to go, but we don't know if there are aren't going to be new opportunities arising from, from discovery. So, Ali, are, are there any questions that you wish I had asked you in this discussion that I just didn't get to? Yes, like where, why DARPA uh, in the overall context? So, I mean, I mentioned this in passing to other people. Like when I was like at, at, on vacation a few years ago, I was reading a Clive Kostler novel, and he mentioned at some point DARPA, and I'm like, whoa. It got to the science novel kind of, you know, realm. So this has to be a hot agency. So Clive Kessler, the author, and yes, DARPA, we, we do know, has a certain kind of mystique and is out there in the cultural world in various ways. That is yes. absolutely true, yeah. I just want to thank you, Ali, for, for uh, spending this time with us and letting us know a little bit about how you're taking this role as a program manager toward the future of technology. Thank you so very much for being here. I am proud of being a DARPA member here, so thank you. And thanks, listeners, for sharing this time with us. I hope you join us again for the next Voices from DARPA. For more information about Ale Lukashev, the programs she runs, and the other breakthrough technologies DARPA is working on, visit DARPA.mil. And for links that enable you to download this podcast, and all the others, go to the Voices from DARPA page on DARPA's website.